0: So do any of you uh, watch this show that I've been hearing a lot about? Uh, I think it's called This Is Us. Are there any fans of the show This Is Us? So literally over the last two weeks, I've had at least five people, at least five, tell me that, oh, Aaron, you've got to watch the show. This is us. And I've never seen it before. And they keep telling me, you know, oh, did you like the show Parenthood? If you like Parenthood, you'll love This Is Us. They all, everybody, really wants me for some reason to watch This Is Us. So the moment finally arrived. I was on a plane on my way to Jamaica, and I realized they had uh, the show was playing on the little drop-down screen on the airplane. And I thought, this is it. I can finally watch This Is Us. So I got my headphones out. I plugged into the jack, and I think I came in maybe 15 minutes into the episode, and. Uh, I'm going to really hurt and offend some of you right now, but I was not impressed. Like, I just, I didn't see what all the hype was about. Like, I didn't like the show, and I, I finished the end of the episode, and I unplugged my headphones, and I'm just like, what, really? This is what everyone's so excited about? And I was, I was kind of bummed for me, honestly, because I was like, everybody else gets to enjoy this show. I watch it, and I'm not impressed at all, and I couldn't figure out why, and then it kind of hit me. Like, well, it really should not be surprising that I was not impressed and I did not enjoy it because I came in in the middle of an episode, in the middle of a season. I didn't know who anyone's names were. There were like three people that I think were siblings, but none of them look alike, so I'm trying to figure it out how in the world they could possibly be related. There's, there's a portion of the story that seems like it's taking place now, and then another part that's taking place in the 70s or 80s. Everyone loves the Steelers. I don't know. I mean, who loves the Steelers? Like, I can't figure out why everyone loves this show, but then I realized it's because I can't appreciate it because I'm dropping right in the middle of it without knowing any idea of what's going on. And I realized, as that kind of hit me, I thought, man, this is the way that we often feel about the Bible. Is it not? I mean, we, we lift up the Bible and we say, hey, this book, it's amazing. Read this book, it will change your life. Open this book, you'll find God, you will hear about God. And yet so often, For honest, we open it up and we're like, I've never, I don't know how to say that name, much less know who that person is. Like, I don't know where this place is. I'm reading in the Old Testament right now. And I'm like, I I don't even know how to pronounce these things. And I feel like I've been dropped into the middle of an episode in the middle of a season of a television drama that I have no clue what's going on. Have you ever been there? Ever felt that way about the word. It's okay to say that you have. I've been there. You know, I'm a pastor. And sometimes I open it up and I feel that way. So this week, we're starting this new series in the book of Ephesians. And I, I did not want us to jump into it and immediately uh, be disoriented because we don't know who they were like, Ephesians, well, what is Ephesians? Who is Ephesians? Is that a people? What, what is this? Like Where does this fall in the Bible? So I wanted to take a week to get us oriented a little bit. Today, I want us just to spend some time understanding who the main players are in this book. I wanted us to see that this book, it's actually not a book at all, it's a letter. And it was a letter that was not just written somewhere out there. It was a letter written in a real time, in a real place, by a real person, to real recipients. It was a letter written in about 62 AD, about 30 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. It is a letter that has a lot to offer and a lot of life. And I think as we look at the characters today that make up this letter, that are involved in this letter, I think we'll find that in this letter, we find a story A story of unlikely transformation, a story of unlikely friendship, all of which find their root in a common source. So let's open up to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is what we read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people, some of your Bibles might say, uh, to the saints. To God's holy people, or the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord out of Ephesians uh, chapter 1. So uh, right away, we're, we're just looking at the intro to this letter, and there's four primary players that we're going to be introduced to this morning. One is the author of the letter, and it's this guy named Paul who calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, the other player is, uh, are these people that are referred to as saints or God's holy people, and they are living in a city called Ephesus. That's our setting. Um, and then there's God our Father, this guy that the writer refers to as God our Father. And then there's this other guy called uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to start with each one of these characters in the setting and help us get our minds around what's happening in this letter before we jump headlong into it for the next few weeks. So let's start with the author. So the author is this guy named Paul. Uh, he calls himself an apostle. That means someone who is sent. He is a sent one for the, for the purpose of Jesus Christ. And we first meet this man, Paul, uh, in the book of Acts. So Acts is this story in the New Testament that tells how the church came to be and how the church got started after Jesus was resurrected. In Acts chapter 7, we're introduced to this guy named Paul, only he doesn't go by Paul. He's going by Saul at this time. And the scene in which we are introduced to him is the scene of the first martyr. A martyr is a person who is executed or murdered because they profess belief in Jesus Christ. And so our opening scene to this guy, Saul, there's a man named Stephen who is being brutally murdered, stoned to death, because he has proclaimed he believes Jesus is the son of God. And as the people that are stoning him or throwing rocks, they're taking off their coats and laying them at the feet of this man named Saul. And it says that Saul was there giving his approval at the death of Stephen. And so right off the bat, we meet this guy named Saul and, and already we're ready to just write him off and be like, man, that is a bad dude. Like he's a bad guy. You know, don't we just tend to divide people up into good guys and bad guys? And we think, oh, that guy's Saul. He's the bad guy. But I think what we see at work in Saul is an understanding of the importance of what we believe. I hear this said a lot, you know, it doesn't really matter what we believe. We can all believe different things as long as we treat one another nicely and love one another. But you see, in Saul, we see this picture that what we believe really matters because you see, Saul really believed that what he was doing to Stephen and approving of was actually bringing honor to God. So what in the world would cause a guy like Saul to think that having someone murdered would honor God? Well, we get a glimpse. It's really kind of cool. We get a glimpse into who Saul is from Paul himself. So Paul writes this other letter uh, to a group of Christians in a city called Philippi. And in this letter, it's the letter to the Philippians. And in the third chapter of the letter to the Philippians, Paul gives a description of who he was when he was Saul. And here's his description of himself. I don't, know, uh, I don't know if you can relate to this description. I mean, Paul is describing himself. I'm not sure that I would describe myself using any of these words. But here's what he says. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. Now, uh, this description is a little weird to our ears because we don't understand what a lot of these words are. I mean, Hebrew, like, uh, I mean, dudes, how many of you have introduced yourself to somebody who would start off by telling them about your circumcision? Like, that's kind of weird, you know, I don't know that anybody would do that. Like, so what in the world is he talking about here? here, Here's what it would sound like, I think, if, if this was a modern day person like Saul. If he was here in Nashville talking to a group of Christians, he would probably say something like this. Listen, I was a pedigreed religious leader, even as an infant. I started off as a leader, even as an infant, he, if, if he was talking to Catholics, he would say, even as an infant, I was baptized and dedicated to God. If he was here at Ethos, he would probably say something like, "You know, even as an infant, they brought me to the front of the church and the pastors prayed over me and dedicated me to the Lord. He says, I was dedicated. I was a part of the most dedicated, the most devoted denomination that you can think of That's what I was a part of. I rejected and stood against every false teaching, and I held tightly to what I believed to be the truth, and I followed every single rule, every single law down to the letter. I followed it. As Saul, I was religiously superior. To most of my peers, I was the elite religious leader. This is how Paul describes himself when he was Saul. And so as Saul stood there persecuting and overseeing the murder of Christians, he really believed in his heart of hearts that he was honoring God. And yet something crazy happens in the life of this guy named Saul. In Acts chapter 9, if you flip over a few chapters in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, Paul is on a road and he's on his way to Damascus. It's a city in modern day Syria. He's on his way to Damascus when suddenly there's this bright light. It's this mysterious bright light that comes along, and, and, and literally overnight, overnight, Saul goes from being a guy who is seeking to persecute and murder followers of Jesus to getting baptized and becoming a follower of Jesus. It's incredible. And then if you fast forward 10 or 11 years in Saul's life, you find an even more remarkable change. He's no longer going by Saul, but now he's being called Paul. And not only has he stopped persecuting Christians in the church of Jesus, now he is actually planting churches or starting new churches all over the Middle East and in Asia Minor and in the entire Mediterranean. Paul is planting these churches. He has had this incredible story of transformation in his life. And honestly, I I think, I wonder, I often wonder if we still believe that this kind of story or this kind of transformation can still happen today. A man who is by all intents and purposes a terrorist, persecuting and murdering people who are different than him because he believes it's what God wants him to do. Can such a person really be changed? Can such a person experience transformation in their life. But this is what we see in Paul, the author to this letter to the Ephesians. He's so transformed. He goes from being one of the greatest persecutors of the gospel to being one of the greatest proclaimers of the gospel. He becomes one of the greatest missionaries in Christian history. He writes over half of our New Testament. And When we hear about a transformation like this, if you're like me, I'm just kind of left going, how in the world is that possible? I think as we dive into Ephesians, you're going to get a glimpse into how such a change is possible in a man like Saul who becomes Paul. And I think an even better question that we're going to find an answer to is not just the how does it happen, but the who is behind such a remarkable change in a person's life. So this is the author. This is Paul, the author of Ephesians. We go on and he says that he, he, we find the, um, the recipients of the letter. It says, To God's holy people in Ephesus. So l- let's start with Ephesus, okay? Because that's the, the setting for where this letter was delivered. Now, you'll, you'll find some scholars debate on whether or not this letter actually was sent to the Ephesians. Some of you might even have a footnote in your Bible that says the word Ephesus was not in some of the early manuscripts. So, what, what a lot of scholars believe happened is that this letter was intended for Ephesus, sent to Ephesus. But the letter wasn't dealing with any specific issue in the local church. It was actually just a very broad and general letter about the beauties of who God is and who Christ is and what it looks like to walk with Christ. And so it became a circulated letter. And it was circulated among lots of the churches around the province of Asia. And so Ephesus is the city where Paul is sending this letter. Ephesus uh, was located, I have a map so you can kind of see where this is. Ephesus was located on the western bank of what is modern day Turkey. It was situated on on a harbor there, and Ephesus was the most important Roman city in the entire province of Asia. Spiritually, uh, Ephesus had an interesting culture going on. We can can take the map down. Uh, Spiritually, uh, Ephesus was known for its adamant and dedicated worship of this goddess named Artemis, or if you were Roman, you would have called her Diana. Now, the temple of Artemis was spectacular, I mean, it was huge. It was this massive structure that came to be known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, The temple was entirely constructed of marble. And to give you some kind of a reference for how big it was, most of us have been to or at least seen the Parthenon that's here in Nashville. You know, the Parthenon that's here in Nashville is a scale replica of another temple that would have been around in the days of Paul. And to show you, it's a big temple. If you've been to the Parthenon before, I mean, it's large. Can we get that next slide that kind of shows a comparison? So the black on here is the Parthenon. The red is the Temple of Artemis. It was about 150% bigger than the the Parthenon. So this is massive temple. And the worship of Artemis had been such a central part of the city of Ephesus. By the time Paul shows up in Ephesus, the city's about a thousand years old, and they've been worshiping Artemis at this temple for about 600 years. It was so central to their culture that when Christianity starts to spread, the stonemasons and the metal workers who crafted idols of the images of this goddess Artemis, they created a riot because as Christianity spread, it was a threat to their income as idol makers. And so here we find this city the city that is the hotbed for pagan worship in the province of Asia. And we're gonna see this remarkable transformation as you read the letter to the Ephesians because Ephesus, it goes from being the hotbed of pagan worship to being the birthplace of the Christian movement in the province of Asia. It's incredible. This city that for thousands of years, for a thousand years, has been worshiping this goddess, The city for a thousand years has been looking at the pantheon of gods, And calling Artemis their goddess, their supreme goddess that they worship. This city that at its very center had houses of prostitution and gambling. This city would somehow be so transformed culturally that it would become a sending place for new churches in the rest of Asia. And so in Paul, we see this personal transformation. But in Ephesus, we we witness this cultural transformation that begins to happen. And if you look back over history and you see how Ephesus changed and you see the impact that it had in the history of your church, you're kind of left just going, how in the world? How is that possible? Or maybe more appropriately, we say, who in the world could be behind such a transformation as this? And so Paul is writing this letter to what he calls uh, the saints in Ephesus. Let's talk about this word, the saints. So they're in the city, Ephesus. Uh, The word saint it's probably not what most of us think of today when we think of saint. Um, Paul is writing, this was a term that he used just to describe believers. So if you were a follower of Jesus, the word Christian or Christi- uh, Christianity wasn't like, as popular in the first century as it is now. Uh, Paul had many words that he would use to refer to the, the body of believers. He would call them the body. He would call them the family of God. Sometimes he would call them saints. And when he started his letters, he often used this word saint. So he wasn't writing a letter to like just the select few who are holier than all the others. No, he was writing a letter to the believers. Uh, sometimes I hear Christians say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm no saint. And I'm like, yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you given your life to Jesus? You are a saint, you are one of the saints. And so Paul is writing this letter to the body of believers in the city of Ephesus, and it's pretty phen- phenomenal. When we think about how these believers became saints. You see, Paul comes into Ephesus, the city as a missionary, and when he shows up, remember it's a city that's steeped in paganism, he first goes to the Jews and he starts telling them the good news about Jesus. Many of them reject him, so Paul takes this different approach. He moves into what's called the lecture hall of Tyrannus. You can read about this in Acts chapter 19. He literally rents out a lecture hall. And every day, day after day, he goes into this lecture hall and he just teaches about the gospel of Jesus. And Acts 19 tells us that after two years in Ephesus, after two years in this lecture hall, that there is not a Jew or Greek in all of Asia who has not heard the good news about Jesus. Is that not incredible? Paul comes in there, this pagan city, and he begins teaching day after day after day. And now he's writing a letter to these saints who were there in Ephesus, people who gave their life to Jesus. But there's more, something more remarkable about Paul's relationship with these saints. See, something you need to know about Paul, remember he, when he was Saul and even as Paul, he was a Jew. Paul was Jewish. Both as Paul and as Saul, he was Jewish. And here's the thing about Jews. Jews don't typically associate with non-Jews or what the Bible calls Gentiles. So when, we, when we're reading Ephesians and you see this word Gentile, that's just referring to someone who is not a Jew. Jews typically would not be caught dead conversing or socializing or whatever with a Gentile. They would never go into the home of a Gentile because that would make them unclean. And yet we see this amazing thing happen in the relationship between Paul and these Gentile believers. We get a glimpse into their friendship in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul, he has long since left Ephesus after he's planted the church there and it started to grow and he's been planting churches elsewhere, but he's passing by on his way to Jerusalem. And he stops in a little town about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And some of the leaders of the church in Ephesus, they want to come down and see Paul. So they travel 30 miles by foot or donkey, and they come down to meet up with Paul. And they meet up on the beach. And it's this beautiful scene in Acts 20 where Paul is encouraging these brothers and sisters in Christ. He's just exhorting them to keep being faithful to Jesus, keep following Jesus. And at the end of it, he tells them, listen, you're probably never going to see me again. And one of the sweetest moments in the New Testament, these these elders, these leaders of the church in Ephesus, they weep, they start weeping when Paul said, you're probably never gonna see me again. And it says that they embrace, they're on the beach as they weep together because they know they're never gonna see their brother. Now, this may not seem that incredible to us, But for a Jewish man who was a religious elite Jewish man to be standing on the beach with a mixed up believers of Jews and Gentiles embracing and weeping with one another because their love for one another was so deep. This is nothing short of a radical relational transformation. Two parties that should have been complete enemies suddenly being connected by a depth of love that a lot of us probably have never even felt before. This is a remarkable transformation. How do enemies become friends? Or maybe again, the better question is, who in the world is behind such an incredible transformation? And so in the author, we see this personal transformation. In the setting of Ephesus, we see this cultural transformation. And In Paul's friendship with the Christians in Ephesus, we, we see this relational transformation. And it leaves us asking this question of who is behind Such a remarkable change. And this brings us to the final player that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter one. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul begins to explain the power of this transformation first with this use of the phrase "God, our Father." Here's what's interesting: that God that Paul is referring to, he's saying, "Listen, this is not just one among many gods. This is not a little g God in the pantheon of gods. No, this is the one God, the supreme God, the big G God, the God that created all that you can see, all that you've ever known. He is the God who put breath in your lungs, the God who knew you from the moment you were born, from before you were born. This is." the God that I'm sending greetings with. And I love it because he says, listen, this God is not distant. He's not angry. He says, God, our father. He says, listen, this God, he is a, a paternal God and he longs to know you. This God longs for humanity to know that they are his children. He longs to call us sons and daughters. This is a God of fatherly love. And it's amazing because Paul does not say God, my father, or God, the father of the Jews. He says, God, our father. He's saying, listen, even the Gentiles, are included underneath the fatherhood of this God. And this will be a theme that we'll see throughout Ephesians, this theme of unity, that there's, there's one God, that it doesn't matter, he's not looking down, he's not concerned about your ethnic background or the color of your skin. He's not concerned about your social class. He's not dividing you up based on what you've earned or what you haven't. He's saying, no, I am God, your father, and you are all my children. And I have one family, and I have one body. And so Jesus says, grace and peace to you From God, our Father. But then he continues on. He doesn't stop with God, our Father. And he says, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're gonna find in Ephesians is Paul's answer to the question of how does transformation happen. Paul's answer to the question of who causes transformation. And repeatedly, over and over and over again, Paul is gonna lift high the name of Jesus Christ as the source of all transformation, the source of all hope, the source of all change, we ask this question, how in the world does personal transformation happen? Well, if you ask Paul, he'll tell you how it happened. It happened on a road on the way to Damascus in a very real time. It wasn't just a random white light that showed up. The white light showed up and Paul says, what is going on? And he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, it's me, the Lord Jesus Christ the one whom you're persecuting. And literally overnight, Paul's life has changed. You see, what causes personal transformation is an encounter with Jesus Christ. That is where personal transformation comes from. And I know there are some of us that are here and there are things in our life that we know need to be transformed and we've tried everything. We've tried self-help, we've tried to get a better job, we've tried to make more money, we've tried to perform better. We've tried to look like a world traveler and put all of our pictures on social media thinking maybe people will think more of me because I'm more culturally sensitive. We think all these things will somehow transform us and make us feel better about ourselves. But I'm telling you, I I know what changes, what transforms is an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you about a time when I was planting a church when I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia and I was planting a church that was not going very well. Um, we struggled to get enough people to show up, we struggled to grow, we struggled to get people to care, and uh, at the time, I, I didn't even, I kind of knew I was doing this, but I kind of didn't, but I was finding so much of my identity based on my success as a church planter. I was basing who I am and God's level of being pleased with me, I was, I was basing how good I feel about myself based on how well I performed and based on my success, and, and in the middle of all this, my church plant is failing, and so I feel like a failure. And it was in the middle of all of this, I remember one day I got this like 24-hour virus where I was just sick, I had like 103 degree uh, fever, and, and I couldn't shake it. And so I stayed in bed all day, and it was in the middle of that day. I remember I'm tossing and turning in bed, trying to go to sleep so that this fever would leave me alone. And suddenly, it, was, uh, it sounds weird, but suddenly I had this sense there was another presence in the room. And I kept closing my eyes, I tried to ignore it, To try to go to sleep, and then this thought, this question started going through my head over and over again, and the question was, Aaron, am I enough for you? 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 Over and over, it played in my head, and I just, I wanted it to be quiet. Because the reality was, I knew who the voice was. The voice was that of Christ. Asking me, Aaron, do you have to be successful or am I enough for you? Is it enough that you're mine? I couldn't escape the question. And for weeks after that, I wrestled with it. And the reason I couldn't escape it and the reason I was afraid to answer it is because the truth was, I knew the honest answer was no, Jesus, I'm not making you enough. Jesus, you're not enough for me right now. And Jesus, once I was finally able to admit that I didn't think He was enough, He was able to come alongside me and take my hand and start walking with me so that I could learn to make him enough, something I'm still learning today. And there on the edge of walking away from ministry, from feeling like a failure, Jesus encountered me and he transformed my heart. I would not be here today if Christ had not come to me and helped me shift my understanding of where my value and where my meaning and where my identity comes from. It came from an encounter with Jesus Christ. What about cultural transformation? How does that happen? Well, I believe it happens from an encounter with Jesus Christ. The city of Ephesus, it wasn't changed because Paul came into the city and tried to change their political structures. It wasn't changed because Paul came in and thought if he improved their education system, then somehow maybe it could be changed. No, Paul sat in a lecture hall and day after day, he taught the word of God and taught people to trust in Jesus. This was how a city was transformed. Do we want our city to be transformed? Do we want racial division in our city to be demolished? Do we want the downtrodden to be lifted up? Do we want people, everybody, to know the good news of Jesus? Do we want the culture of our city to be transformed because it becomes transformed when the people of God begin living as though they have had an encounter with Jesus Christ? That is what will change our city. I'd love for some of you sometime when you have a chance to talk to Jana Og, Jana was the one up here that got us started, and she runs a nonprofit called Switchboard Missions. And when she started, uh, she wanted to start this ministry in um, in Gulu, Uganda. And she thought, hey, I'm going to move into these poor villages that have been war-torn for years. And, and her goal was that she would change the culture of Gulu, Uganda, by coming in with humanitarian resources. And she started to provide uh, chickens, her and some friends of hers who also go to Ethos. They moved into Gulu. They lived there for three months. And they provided families that didn't have any food with chickens so they could have a way to provide for their family. And they began providing water and all these physical resources, all of which are amazing and good. But what she started to watch happen was that the people that they were giving resources to, they weren't treating the resources with integrity. They would lie because they were supposed to hatch chicks and hand them on to others. And they would lie about how many chicks were laid because they wanted to keep the chickens for themselves. And they started stealing. And she started noticing that every time she came around, they only wanted to ask for more physical resources. And then eventually one day, this Ugandan pastor had the courage to come to her. And he said, hey, listen, we love what you're doing here and we appreciate it. But what we really need, what our culture really needs, is more of Jesus. Would you come and teach us? Because we have pastors that have never held a Bible and they're trying to lead a church. Would you come and teach us about Christ so that we can teach others about Christ? And just pull Jana aside and ask her the change that has happened. I got to go over the last two summers and see a room full of 240 pastors, hungry for Jesus, who are now living and serving in a way that they hadn't before. Because Jana allowed herself to be stretched and to believe that a culture is transformed by an encounter with Jesus, not by physical resources. And finally, we see relational transformation. Spoiler alert, I think that relational transformation comes from what? An encounter with Jesus Christ. Paul's relationship with the Ephesians was not one because he just tried to be a better person and love them more. No, both parties were transformed by an encounter with Jesus. One of my favorite stories if you've never heard of Jim Elliott or Elizabeth Elliott, you need to look into their names and look up their story. It's This incredible story that happened in the 1950s. Jim was a missionary who, with four other missionaries, flew down to Ecuador so that he could plant a church and bring the gospel to a tribe of people that had never heard the name of Jesus. And when they landed their plane on this river in Ecuador, they, they met this tribe, and at first they thought it was going well, but it quickly turned sour. And the natives murdered all five of these missionaries with spears and machetes. Two years later, this woman, Elizabeth Elliott, who lost her husband to this tribe, she learned the language. She moved in among them. She began to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Nine years later, another one of the missionaries, his son, Steve Saint, moved there as well. He was 14 years old. And nine years after his dad was murdered, he was baptized by the man who murdered his father in the river where his father was murdered. How in the world does that happen? How does that happen? It's ludicrous. It's out of this world. But it's not a how, it's a who. Do you wanna know how relational transformation happens? How do enemies become family? It is through an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hope for the world. Jesus is the hope for the United States. Jesus is the hope for Nashville. And Jesus is the hope for your life. We need an encounter with the living Lord Jesus. Do you want to know Jesus ethos? Do you want to know the Lord? This is why we spent 30 days fasting and praying and asking the Lord, because we know that it's not on us and the things that we do, that what we need as a family of God are encounters with Jesus. Every single day we need to be reminded Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is good, and Jesus is the hope of the world, amen? Amen. This is the hope of the world. That Jesus Christ died for the sins of humanity. He was buried and he resurrected three days later bringing hope of new life for all of humanity and all of creation. This is the good news story and this is where the power of transformation is found. In just a minute, we're going to go take communion together. We do this every week together. This is not an empty ritual. It's just something we do to remember the living Lord. Now, there are some of you sitting here that, that are not believers, who, who, who would not consider yourself Christians, or you're not sure if you want to take this Christianity thing seriously. Let me just, let me just ask you a simple question. Are there any areas in your life where you're longing for transformation? Is there any areas in your life where you know you need change and you long for change? Here's what I would ask you to do this morning. I, I can't do anything about that stuff in your life, but I know someone who can. And here's what I'd ask you to do as we go to communion, as we continue worshiping. I, I invite you just to say a simple prayer. Maybe you've never prayed before. That's okay. Just say a simple prayer. You just say this. Say, say, Jesus, I'm not sure I believe that you're the answer, but I'm open to believing Would you say that to him? And then just ask him, what what do I do? How do I do this? (laughs) Jesus, would you teach me to have faith? Say, Jesus, I'm not sure I believe, but I'm open to believing. Would you help me? So if you're sitting there and you don't know if this is for you, I encourage you, say that simple prayer. Say it with a humble heart and see if the Lord will not do something in your life. For those of you that are believers, and you're looking for, uh, for that fresh encounter, let's come to communion with one another. Let's take that bread, that cup. Let's remember, it's not empty. That Jesus is here in our midst. And if you need transformation, then will you share that with the person you're taking communion with? Share with them the ways that you need Jesus to reach into your heart. Allow them to pray for you and ask Jesus to show up in the way that only he can by the power of his spirit who lives in you. And ask him to do something new and something fresh in your life. In any of this, if you want prayer, if you need prayer, again, we always have men and women at that red banner in the back of the room and the red banner over here. We would love to pray for you, encourage you in any way that we can. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion with one another and worship the name of Jesus. Father, I praise you, Lord, because you are holy. I praise you, Lord, because you choose to call yourself our Father, um, that you want to love me like your kid. You want me to love you like my dad I'm so grateful for that thank you for Jesus Jesus I praise your name thank you for the power that is available to us because of your death and resurrection thank you for the spirit that you put within us and and Lord I ask right now uh, at risk of sounding like a fool I ask that you would come and do something as people around this room start praying as we start asking you to work would you do something only you can do I, I, State, I believe, Lord, I believe that you can, that you will. I believe that you are here, right here in our midst. And so I ask that you would come and do what only you could do, that people would encounter you in fresh ways today. And Lord, you would begin transforming us as a church family as we bear your name to the city around us. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, amen.